If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 16. We're, we're continuing this idea of being entrusted and, and uh, how that God has entrusted his stuff to our care. We began in Genesis chapter 2. Last week we looked at 1 Chronicles 22. Today we're looking at a parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 16. It's uh, the parable that begins in verse 1, not the uh, parable that begins in verse 19. The parable that begins in verse 19 is an easy parable to preach. The parable that begins in verse 1 is a little more challenging, and you'll see that as you read it um, in a few moments. But as we look at this parable, uh, we, we need to be reminded again that Psalm 24 verse 1 tells us that everything belongs to the Lord. The earth and all of its fullness belong to God. Everything belongs to God. Everything that you have that you think is yours is really God's. And, and everything belongs to the Lord. Um, and, uh, and so, who are we in this journey? Well, the right view of, uh, of, of how stuff works in our life is with God at the top of this triangle. God is the owner of all the stuff. And when we are in relationship and in harmony with him, we see ourselves in service to him and stewards of this stuff that he's put under our care. And so God is the owner of the stuff. We are merely entrusted to take care of it. And he allows us to find great joy and pleasure in in that stuff that he's put under our care. But there is a portion that he says, this is what you return to me. And we talked about that. Uh, we'll talk about that even more next week. Uh, but uh, this picture of relationship with God and relationship with stuff, it, it, it flows from God being the owner and we are the stewards. And that's the way it's supposed to look when we're in harmony with God. But many of us, all of us at different times, some of us even now, we have a skewed view of our relationship with God and relationship with stuff. And that puts me at the top of the triangle where I am the owner of the stuff and God is supposed to serve me by ten tending, taking care, being a steward of my stuff. And so that is a picture of living in rebellion against God where I kick him off the top shelf. I put myself up there as the top man I own the stuff. God's supposed to take care of my stuff uh, so that I'm happy. Well, that is a picture of a skewed view of, uh, of, of our relationship with God and a skewed view of our relationship with stuff. All right? So stuff being a very technical theological term meaning worldly possessions, okay? But it's stuff, all right? So as we look at our own life, now you need to evaluate your life and your relationship with God and your relationship with possessions. Do you primarily see the possessions as belonging to you? I'm happy uh, today that the possessions belong to God and not to me. Uh, on uh, Friday night about uh, 1.30 or 2 o'clock in the morning, we get a call from Emily Catherine, my daughter at Liberty in Lynchburg. And uh, anytime, you know, parents, anytime you get one of those early morning calls, it is not good news. She's not announcing her engagement, which would be bad news anyway, but uh, uh, you know it's bad news. Well, 
Sure enough, it was bad news. Well, I'll give you a little bit of how it works in my home. I turn my phone to silent. I don't turn it off because, you know, my girls might need to call me. But it's silent, so it can't wake me up. <laughs> Go figure. But I have uh, three other daughters who are in my home right now. And uh, they all have their phones on. And uh, about 145 or 150, uh, Maggie, our number three daughter, uh, knocked on the door, came in the room, said, now don't freak out. What do you mean, don't freak out? I mean, it, it's 145. Anyway, she, she comes in and she says, Emily, Catherine's been in a wreck. And sure enough, uh, some, uh, some other person uh, was driving along, fell asleep at the wheel, sideswiped Emily Catherine, ran her off the road, totaled the car, but thankfully it was the Tahoe. Tonnage, you know, uh, but it did total that. So uh, the car is gone. It's done. No big deal to me. That car didn't belong to me anyway. It belonged to God, right? And so I know that God is going to take care of any loss that there is there. And whatever he helps us replace that car with, that belongs to God too. And we know it's what he has entrusted into our care. Now that's the proper view. The improper view is I can't believe my daughter wrecked my car. When we have a proper view of our relationship with God, it shows our dependence on him. When the stuff doesn't belong to us, it belongs to him. We're just dependent upon him. We are trusting him to take care of its outcome as we are faithful in being stewards of what he's entrusted to us. So you look at your stuff, or the stuff that's under your care, and you today begin putting the ownership stamp, not belonging to Eric Thomas, but rather belonging to the Lord God. Now, when we do this, we, we're faced with certain challenges, and this is part of our journey as followers of Jesus. It's that, that continual pull to use stuff to our own advantage for, purely for our own motives. But what, what we learn in the parable in Luke chapter 16 uh, is that God entrusts us to make wise choices with the, His stuff for his purpose. God entrusts us to make wise choices with his stuff for his purpose. All right, let me read the parable. We're going to deal with some of the problems, and then we're going to bring it home and see how it applies to our daily life, okay? Are you ready? Everybody ready? It's eight o'clock. We're going to have to get more interactive at eight o'clock, right? Okay, all right, eight o'clock. By the way, I was reading Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through, I think I stopped at verse 6. I don't know where I stopped because I couldn't read the words. If you notice, I didn't put my glasses on. Hopefully, I didn't mumble the text too much. I, I, I couldn't read half of it. So, uh, let me put on my glasses. Let's read Luke chapter 16. There are some difficulties in this parable. Uh, by the way, this is the first time in my 20 years of preaching that I've ever preached this passage. Pretty cool. All right? All right, so Luke chapter 16. Jesus also said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to the rich man that this steward was wasting his goods. 
So the rich man called the steward and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I am ashamed to beg. I've resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him, and he said to the first, how much does, uh, do you owe my master? And the, the guy said, a hundred measures of oil. And so uh, the steward said to him, take your bill, sit down, and write 50. And it, the steward said to another uh, debtor, he said, how much do you owe? And, and the guy said, a hundred measures of wheat. And, and so the steward said, take your bill and write 80. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you uh, into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. All right, so let's break this apart, and this is going to feel a little bit pedantic at times, but it's important for us to understand the teaching of the parable before we draw the application, all right? So, so here's, you, you get the story, and there's debate on what the unjust steward did initially to get fired from his job. Uh, when when uh, uh, the master calls him in, gets a report that the steward had wasted his goods, the master then fires the servant. So some say that the, the steward was stealing from the master. Others have suggested he was neglecting his job. Uh, regardless, he got a zero on the performance evaluation, and he was about to be fired. When the servant, or the steward, realized that he was about to be fired, he, he, he then began to plan, what am I going to do next? And as he began to evaluate what he was going to do next, he knew that he was a wimpy, so he couldn't dig ditches. And uh, he, 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 he knew that he was proud, so he wasn't going to beg. So what was he going to do? Well, here's what he did. He got all of the debtors together. And he called them in. He said, how much do, do you owe the master? And the guy said, 100. And, and so the, servant, the steward said, all right, I want you to scratch out 100, and I want you to put 50. Went to another. How much do you owe? 100. He said, I want you to scratch out 100, and I want you to put 80. Now, again, this is problematic for us because the master sees that and says, commends this steward for being shrewd. Okay? Cunning and wise. So 
what was it that the steward was doing? Well, some suggest that the steward was cooking the books, right? And that seems the plain reading of the text, right? That, that the steward was cooking the books. So how could the master commend this steward? Well, the, the master was not commending the steward's actions. He was commending the steward's wisdom or shrewdness in taking care of himself. You see, what he was doing was he was cutting off some of the bill that, was, that the debtors owed so that the steward then could go into their homes. They would, be, uh, they would uh, owe the steward a debt, not the master. He saved them 50 and he saved them 20. And so they would, uh, in, in that culture, they would open their home to that steward at least for a period of time. So the steward was getting his feet on the ground. He was creating his own severance package, so to speak. Well, that's how some interpret it. Others interpret it this way. I lean more toward this, but, but in, in the customs of Palestine there, during that day, uh, that hundred that the debtor owed the master, in that hundred was a commission to the steward. And some have suggested that what the steward was really doing, he wasn't robbing from the master, he wasn't cooking the books, he was just removing the commission that was due him. I like that. That sounds a little bit nicer, doesn't it? Well, others have suggested he, 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 he was not cooking the books and he wasn't taking out his own commission. What he was doing was the master was using interest rates that were against the Ten Commandments and the law of Moses. And so the steward was removing the interest rates. The master couldn't say anything about it because the charge that he was, uh, the, 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 the points that he was charging the, the people who owed him money, they, they, that was illegal according to the law of Moses. And so, so uh, the, the steward understood that, and he just kind of diminished that bill by taking away those points, forgiving part of that debt or the interest part of the debt. Well, however you interpret the actions of the steward, understand how Jesus commends the situation. He tells the story, and here's what he says. He says, he says, Followers of his should be wise in the same way that this steward was wise. Now, how was the steward wise? The steward was wise by trying to take care of his future. He was wise by looking toward uh, tomorrow, not just this moment. He was caught up in the stress of losing his job, but he looked down the road. What am I going to do next? And so Jesus was saying the steward was acting in a wise way because he was looking toward the future. And in the same way, Jesus says, the way we handle stuff, we need to handle it in a way that looks toward the future. We need to be wise to, to, to take the resources that God the owner has put in our hands and use them with the future in mind. Okay? So that's the wisdom part, and really that's the point of the parable. But Jesus starts adding certain teachings along with it that, that need 
that we need to take note of. Uh, The first point that, that we need to take is the purpose. See, the purpose that Jesus highlights for us in this idea of taking the stuff God's put in our hands, the purpose is for God's pleasure, not our pleasure. All right, so as we look at this idea that God has entrusted to us certain resources, and we are to be wise and make wise choices with those resources, the, the question is, why? Well, we are wise because we want these resources to bring God greater pleasure. We want these resources to reflect a growing, enhanced, increasing friendship with God. We want to honor the Master. We want to bless our King. And so, when Jesus tells his story, he follows it up. Look at verse 9. He says, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. All right, so we've got to do some things here because, uh, again, I told you this is a complicated parable. All right, so as we look at this, who are the friends... Who are the they receive you? And what is he talking about when he talks about an everlasting home? All right. So here's here's the the shorthand and you can go and you can study more of this. And I may even put a little bit more detail on the blog tomorrow. But if you look at at verse nine, he says, I say to you, this is Jesus talking, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon. All right. So let me deal with unrighteous mammon first. The two terms there, mammon and unrighteous, uh, we tend to think unrighteous mammon as, uh, as money um, gotten by ill means or dishonest means. But that's not really the picture here. Unrighteous is a Greek term that means unfaithful. It means not righteous or absent of righteousness, it is also a picture or a euphemism of this world rather than heaven. And I believe what Jesus is saying here and what the hearers of Jesus and the readers of Luke's gospel would have immediately picked up on is that Jesus is drawing a comparison between heaven and here, between Riches in heaven and possessions here on earth. You can look in Luke chapter 12, verses 33 and 34, where Jesus says, um, uh, uh, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. But as you look here, unrighteous mammon, I would, and NIV, the New International Version, gets this right, I believe. It, it, it translates those two terms as worldly possessions. And I believe that's right. I don't think he's talking about using ill-gotten gains in a way that gains pleasure from God. I don't think that works. But it's just as legitimate to see that Jesus is saying, use the worldly possessions in such a way that you make friends of others. All right, so, so unrighteous mammon, worldly possessions. Now, who are the friends that he's talking about? Make friends... Gain friends by unrighteous mammon. Well, uh, as, as we look at friends, we need to look at the main verb of verse 9. 
The main verb of verse 9 is so that they may receive you into your eternal home. Who is the they who are receiving into an eternal home? Now remember, this is Jesus talking. He knows that there is only one person who gives access to heaven. There's only one. There's none other. And that is God himself. And so as Jesus is talking and he says that they, uh, gain friends and that they may receive you, he's talking about the same person. I believe he's talking about God. Now, this is not uncommon in teaching to use the plural form without using the name God. It's called circumlocution. In the, I just thought I'd show off a little bit. It's circumlocution. It's where... Jesus is saying friends and they, so that he doesn't have to use the word God. Very common rabbinic teaching, very common in the Jewish culture. So as we look at verse 9, here's how I interpret it. That we need to use the resources, the worldly possessions that God has put in our hands in such a way that we honor our friendship with God so that he might welcome us with delight when we enter the pearly gates of heaven. So that he might say, Woo, Eric, good job down on earth. Come on in. Now, we know that I'm going to heaven not because I did right with worldly possessions. I'm going to heaven because Jesus Christ died for my sin upon a cross. I'm going to heaven because by faith I trusted Jesus as my only hope to secure my home in heaven. I'm going to heaven because Jesus was raised from the dead. And through that great first fruits resurrection, I know I'm going to live again in eternity. I'm going to heaven because of Jesus, not because of my money. So here, Jesus is saying, when you get to heaven, and you're there in attendance in the presence of God, you need to make sure that how you handled the worldly possessions here on earth brings delight to the Father when you see Him face to face. The purpose for our worldly possessions is not our own pleasure, but rather the pleasure of God. That is the ultimate purpose for everything that we have. The ultimate purpose for the shirt I'm wearing on my back, the ultimate purpose is not that you think it's a good-looking shirt. It's not for your pleasure, but rather it is for the pleasure of God. The money that I have in my checking account, that is not there ultimately for my pleasure, but rather for the pleasure of God. Am I utilizing all of the worldly possessions that God has put in my care with the goal of bringing God pleasure, to gain friendship, to make friends, to honor my friendship with God? As you take a tally of all your worldly possessions, think, just take a moment, think. How many of those resources do you say, man, how can I use this for God's pleasure? 
See, this blows the idea of the tithe out of the water. See, with the idea of the tithe, what we're saying is, I'm only going to use a dime out of a dollar to bring God pleasure. But what Jesus, I believe, is teaching here in Luke 16, verse 9, is it's not just a dime out of a dollar, but it's the whole dollar that ultimately is for God's pleasure. And we who are wise will take note of that dollar and say, I want to use this in a way that brings God pleasure. Okay? All right, so that's number one. The second thing that we see in this passage is that uh, a heavenly reward depends on our faithfulness. Now, here's the thing, and we've said this, you've said this, you understand this. We need to live with the end in mind, right? Uh, We need to make investments today with the end in mind. If all we're doing is making investments now for the now, then we're not focused on this heavenly perspective. And so Jesus goes on, look at verses 10, 11, and 12. Jesus goes on, he says, He who is faithful in what is least is also faithful in much. All right, let me define what is least and what is much. What is least? All your worldly possessions. That's the least. What is much? Heavenly reward. God's pleasure. God's good job. Well done, good and faithful servant. Okay? So you have the least. That's the stuff. You have the much. That is harmony with God, fellowship with God, reward from God in heaven. All right? So he's saying, he who is faithful in these worldly possessions that God's put in your care is going to experience faithfulness in the much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in worldly possessions, unrighteous men, if you've not been faithful in worldly possessions, who will commit to your trust the true riches? Now, uh, verse 11 Verse 10 talks about faithfulness. Verse 11 talks about consequence. He says, essentially, if we're not faithful in the worldly possessions, which has as its purpose God's pleasure, if we're not faithful in worldly possessions, which belong to another, which belong to God, how in the world is God going to entrust to you the true? Now, in the Greek, your translation may say true riches. But in the original text, riches is not there. That's supplied by interpreters. The only word that is there is true. How will God entrust to you the true? The true what? I believe he's talking about the true, the greater, the heavenly reward that we have uh, on deposit for us in heaven. You see, uh, in, in Luke chapter 12, and I referred to this a moment ago, Luke chapter 12, verses 33 and 34, we see that Jesus tells us, and in Matthew chapter 6, a more popular version, uh, it, Jesus says, all right, don't invest your time, your talent, your resources in things which moth and rust can destroy, but rather make your investment in that which is eternal. 
Make your investment in that treasure trove of heaven so that when you get to heaven, God sees the treasure that you've stored up, the investments that you've made. How do we make those investments? How do we have that deposit up in heaven? Well, we are obedient and faithful to God here on earth. This is not worldly possession for worldly possession. Worldly possession is the least of the things. In heaven, there is something truer, something more satisfying, something more fulfilling that God is ready to shower down on us. And that is heavenly reward. Heavenly reward is where God, it's not earning heaven. It's the rewards we experience in heaven from the approval of our father, our king, our master where he says, well done, and where he lavishes upon us the deposits with interest of what we've done here on earth. Is your faithfulness in worldly possessions here on earth making any deposits for a heavenly reward in heaven? Okay you got to answer the question. You have to. See, this isn't about a church trying to get money for a program. This is about you growing up as a follower of Jesus. Do you get that? This isn't about us trying to get money in the bank here on earth. No, this is, this is about you being a faithful follower of Jesus, of you growing up in Christ. See, Jesus brings it all home in verse 13. What he says in verse 13 is how we spend our money shows whom we serve. And this this is the ringing bell for us today. Now, you just deal with that one. How we use our money shows whom we serve. Verse 13, no one can serve two masters. You can't serve God and possessions at the same time. There's only going to be one person at the top of the triangle. Either God or you. Whom do you serve? When it comes to our resources, it shows. You get that? The possessions, the worldly possessions that God's put in our care, how we use it shows whom we serve. Guys, I was convicted by this. I hope you are too. How I use the resources God's put in my care, does it demonstrate my service to God? Or does it really demonstrate my service to myself? No one can serve two masters. You'll love the one and despise the other. No one can serve God and possessions. So today, as followers of Jesus, the mandate for us is to be wise. 
to live with the end in mind, you're going to meet God face to face and he is going to hold us account for how we used the resources he put in our care. Will we be able to say, God, I wasn't perfect at it, but if you look across the bulk of my life, The bulk of my life is a picture of serving you even with these worldly possessions. Whom will you serve?